And now, if you will remain standing and open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 14. This will be our sermon text this evening, Psalm chapter 14. And this is God's holy word, which was written for your edification, and you would do well to give it your full attention. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does Good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And you may be seated. On more than one occasion, members of the church have told me that they believe in the doctrines of grace, or specifically Calvinism, but they say that they're not sure where to go in Scripture to explain those doctrines. Well, there are many places in Scripture that speak directly on those doctrines, and Psalm 14 is certainly one of them. This psalm is especially helpful in expounding on the Calvinistic doctrine of total depravity. If you want another place in Scripture that expounds this doctrine, then you can go also to Psalm 53, because it's basically the same psalm as Psalm 14. There's only a few variances in verses 5 and 6 that are different. Now, for those who might respond and say, okay, That's maybe what is taught in the Old Testament, but things are different now in the New Testament since Christ came. Then they're going to have to deal with the fact that Paul quotes the two verses from this psalm that most explicitly teach on the doctrine of total depravity. Clearly, this doctrine is important For the same exact words are recorded in three different places in Scripture. Of course, this doctrine itself is taught all throughout the Bible, but it is taught explicitly here with the exact same words in three different places in the Bible. The whole of this psalm, I think, will help us to understand this doctrine and how it relates to election and grace. Now, this psalm is a little different than the psalms that we have encountered thus far. It is a wisdom psalm, whereas we have primarily dealt with psalms of lamentation up until now. There have been elements of wisdom, of the wisdom genre at places, but this psalm as a whole 
can be categorized as a wisdom psalm. It is, however, similar, I think, to the other psalms that we've seen, in that there is a continuation of the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. David is, once again, the author of this psalm, and he says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Actually, more literally, it says, the fool says in his heart, no God. And the fools that David speaks of here are the wicked, the evildoers. But of course, the righteous, which he speaks of down in verse 5, are not this way. They are those who claim that Yahweh is their God. Now, on this note, when speaking of those who say there is no God, the foolish ones who say there is no God, it's important to establish that David is not speaking here of atheism as we understand it today. The atheism of the fool here in Psalm 14 is a practical atheism. David is not referring to those who do not believe in a divine being. David's day, everyone believed in a divine being. Even the pagans believed in many divine beings. In our day, there are what might be called philosophical atheists who actually try to deny that a divine being exists. But in all actuality, Paul tells us in Romans that all men know the truth that God exists, but that they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 So even in our day, there's no such thing as an atheist, properly speaking. But there are those who live their lives, try to trying to suppress the truth that they do actually know about God's existence. Now what David is referring to here are those who live as if God will never hold them accountable for the things that they do in their lives. It is a person who does not fear God as the righteous judge. The fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. But those who live in folly, that is, the practical atheists, the fools spoken of here, are those who go to the greatest length in their lives to empty their thoughts of a God who will bring them to account for their actions. David says of them, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, and that there is none who does good. Now, this really describes everyone apart from the grace of God. How do we know this? Well, look at verses 2 and 3 of our psalm. David says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. And what does the Lord see when he looks down from heaven? Verse 3, he sees that they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now these are the verses that Paul quotes 
in Romans chapter 3. And Paul's point in that chapter is to show that not only are the Greeks or the Gentiles under sin, but so too are the Jews. Here's what he says in verses 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we, have all char- for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And here's our psalm. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, that's really a pretty good definition of total depravity. Someone who cannot do good, who is not righteous, who is worthless and does not seek after God. And who does Paul say fits into this category? Just some people? Most people? A few people? No, all. Are under sin. No one is righteous, no, not even one. And we can add to that what Paul says only a few verses later in verse 23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, beloved, when Adam sinned in the garden, everyone, every single person who came after him sinned in him and fell with him. Everyone sinned in him because he was the first covenant head. As head, he represented us all. And so his sin was imputed to all. It was credited to all. His sin was our sin. And we fell with him because the sin which is imputed to us corrupted us. That's what depraved means, to be morally corrupt. And that corruption infects every part of our being, which is why we call it total, total depravity. Now, you might think to yourself, well, I know some unbelievers who have done some pretty good things in their lives. And so how is it possible that they are totally depraved? Well, we need to understand not only what total depravity means, but also what it does not mean. What we do mean by total depravity is that every part of man is infected with the corruption of sin. What we do not mean is that every part is as corrupt as it could be. So by total, we mean that every part of man is infected with corruption. But not that every part is as corrupt as it could be. You see, by God's common grace, not his saving grace, but by his common grace, God restrains the corruption of sin in man so that he is not as evil as he could be. The restraint of sin by God in this way allows history to move forward, that it might reach the goal of God's predetermined plan. And so the depravity or the corruption, then we might say, invades every faculty of man. 
But every faculty is not as corrupt and evil as it could be apart from God's restraint of it. This is why you have seen unbelievers do things that by all outward appearances seem like very good things. Okay, but David and Paul not only tell us that everyone is corrupt, but that no one does good. Not even one. How can this be when we see unbelievers even doing things which very much appear good? Well, we must distinguish between that which is spiritually good and that which is outwardly good. No unbeliever can do anything that is spiritually good. That is, anything which would please God. For instance, in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, Paul says there, For the mind that is set on the flesh, he's describing here an unbeliever, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then Paul says to the Romans in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And so it is only those who are believers possessing the Spirit of God who can spiritually please God with their good works. And so an unbeliever might be able to do something that is outwardly good, but not anything that is inwardly or spiritually good. The Westminster Confession of Faith describes it in terms of the matter and the manner of the good that they do. An unbeliever may do the matter of a good work, but they don't do it in the proper manner. And so outwardly, the matter of good may be done by an unbeliever, but inwardly, spiritually, they lack the proper manner of the good work. You see, they do not do good works with the proper goal, motive, and standard. Their goal is not to glorify God. The motive does not come from faith through a renewed heart. And the standard of what they do does not come from God's word. And so when they do something that is outwardly good, they're doing it to glorify someone other than God. Maybe for themselves. Maybe for the person they're doing the good for. Or maybe just to glorify mankind in general. Humanitarians often look at it in just such a way. We're just to glorify God. Place man as the one who is ultimately divine or God. And we are to basically save ourselves. We glorify mankind and the good things that we do. But certainly, an unbeliever does not do good works in accordance with the word of God, out of faith and unto the glory of God. Therefore, it is not anything that is spiritually good and which pleases God. 
Thus David and Paul assert that no one does good. And this is absolutely true of everyone, every single person, until the Spirit of God regenerates their heart. So you see how this doctrine then supports the other doctrine of election. Until those whom God has elected have been renewed by His Spirit. And only until then can they do that which is spiritually good. Remember, beloved, that everyone sinned in Adam and fell with Adam. None of them seek after God in their own depravity. That is, until the Spirit operates upon their hearts. Now, David is reflecting on these things because in his, in his suffering at the hands of the wicked, he realizes just how corrupt mankind is. Much of his suffering has even come from other Israelites who were in covenant with God. So then it was very appropriate for Paul to quote this text to show that Jews we're actually no better off than the Gentiles since all are under sin. Verse 4 of our psalm confirms this. For Israelites in Psalm 14 are persecuting other Israelites. In other words, those practical atheists among the Jews were persecuting those Jews who by the grace of God were following the Lord. And David is perplexed by this. He asks, have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat up bread and do not call upon the Lord. In other words, certain Israelites who may recognize the existence of the Lord, nevertheless are practical atheists. And thus they do not call upon the name of Yahweh. And these men do not believe that the Lord will hold them accountable for their actions. Therefore, they persecute those who by grace do call upon the Lord. But David affirms in verse 5 that God will indeed hold them accountable. For he says, there they are in great terror. Why? Because, he says... God is with the generation of the righteous. You see, the practical atheist may, as David writes here, they may shame the plans of the poor, verse 6, but the Lord is his refuge. And so there is indeed hope for the true Israel of God, for the remnant of those who truly cry out to God By his grace. Therefore, David closes out this psalm with a prayer of deliverance, saying, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Beloved David and all those who were oppressed at that time would certainly find salvation from their present enemies in time. The Lord did, in fact, restore 
their fortune through David's victories over the wicked. But those deliverances, or that deliverance, was really just a type and a shadow of a greater deliverance. A greater salvation that would come through David's greater son, the Messiah. It was Jesus Christ who would come and bring salvation to those who by God's grace call upon his name. But this salvation accomplished and secured by Christ would come in two stages. The first stage came in the first coming of Christ. He is the only one to live a perfectly righteous life. He is the only one who in and of himself performed that which was spiritually good all throughout his life. When the rich ruler came to Jesus asking him what he must do to inherit eternal life, he addressed Jesus as good teacher. And Jesus asked him, why do you call me good? You see, the the ruler thought that Jesus was good enough, but he also thought that he himself was good claiming to have kept the law of God from his youth. But Jesus was informing him that he, Jesus, as the God-man, was the only one who was truly good. He was addressing the man to help him see, you have spoken correctly when you call me good. Only I am good. And being the only one who is truly good made him, qualified him to be the perfect sacrifice for his people. Thus, he suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 1 Peter 3, 18. See, no one except for Christ is righteous. No one does good. No, not one. Only Christ. Therefore, we need the righteousness of Christ. For since the sin of Adam was imputed to all, those who will be saved need the righteousness of Christ. They cannot depend upon their own righteousness, for Adam's sin has been imputed to them. They need the righteousness of another. And this was accomplished for God's people by his dying and rising again. In his death, your sins were forgiven and his righteousness imputed to you who believe and who call upon his name for salvation. And so we already have a deliverance accomplished for us in Christ. And that's phase one. That's stage one. However, persecution will remain for those redeemed by Christ until stage two of our salvation. We will still find suffering. We will still find persecution and will not be delivered from those things. We will not be delivered in its totality from the effects of sin until Christ 
returns. You see, David, as a type of Christ, was the Lord's anointed. And both he and the remnant of Israel at that time received persecution. And so it is with the new covenant age as well. Jesus received persecution as the Lord's anointed Savior. And all his people will receive persecution by the hands of the wicked as well. This will take place until Christ returns from the heavenly Mount Zion to restore the fortunes of his people. Beloved, this is the tribulation we have been discussing from the book of Revelation. The end time tribulation began with Christ and it will take place until he returns. Beloved, this age is defined by... In many respects, persecution. At certain times and in certain places, it comes in greater or lesser degrees. But it is an age of tribulation and persecution. There will be persecution. In fact, to a lesser degree, I recently have experienced persecution myself. One of my own family members, who I will let remain nameless for the sake of the recording. But one of my own family members in the flesh stopped speaking to me because I shared the gospel with him and told him that those who do not believe in Christ will inherit eternal condemnation. They will undergo the eternal fires of hell. And he told me, That family members should never say things like that to one another. And now he wants nothing to do with me. When I shared the gospel with him, he said he wanted nothing to do with a God like that. He hates God. And therefore, he persecutes me. It's a small form of persecution, but persecution nonetheless. And I found it interesting that in my conversation with him, he kept wanting to tell me that he does so many good things in his life. And I kept trying to tell him that I believe that he does things that are outwardly good. But I tried to make him wrestle with what goodness actually is. If there is goodness then there must be some standard for it. And God is that standard. He has told us in his word what goodness is. And that we can do nothing spiritually good in and of ourselves because we are all sinners and deserve God's wrath. The only man, I tried to tell him, The only man that was truly good was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And I told him that you must believe on him in order to do anything that is spiritually good. Only by believing on him can we do anything that will please God. Well, he just told me that I was crazy and now he won't have anything to do with me. And that is what the unbelieving world does. 
They define what is good based upon their own feelings. And they live according to their own standards. In their own heart of hearts, they know the true God. But they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. They even know God's righteous standards for it is written on their hearts. Romans 2.15 But they hate God. And so they do not acknowledge Him or live according to His law. Listen to what Romans 1.28-32 says. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see, beloved, that family member didn't like what I had to say. And didn't think family members should say that because in his heart of heart he knew it was actually true and he doesn't want to deal with that fact. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, he knows, he knows that death is the penalty for such infractions of God's law. Unbelievers know God's righteous standard. It is written on their heart, but they will not follow it. It matters not whether we are talking about philosophical atheism or practical atheism. The result is the same. They live according to their own evil standard and call their own foolishness good. Beloved, there are many church goers who do the same they believe in God but they live as if God will never hold them accountable for their actions beloved even the demons believe and shudder but they seek not to do God's will they do not trust in God And so unbelievers live as if the day of judgment is never actually coming. But when Christ, the judge, returns, he will not call their works good and grant them eternal life. Instead, they will be condemned to eternal perdition. They will be condemned forever to hell. On that day... God will restore the fortunes of his people. For in the gospel, Christ has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.31 But for those who wish to remain in their folly, they will be brought to terror. For the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We must look only 
to the goodness of Jesus Christ and for his saving work to be saved from eternal condemnation. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you might keep us faithful. Though some may reject us, some may turn from us, some may even uh, speak ill words about us. And in places around the world, some are even put to death for their faith. Lord, we pray that your church would always be faithful. Just as we looked at this morning from Revelation chapter 1, Lord, help your church's light always to shine bright as a witness to Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that as we do so, you will use it as a means to grow us in the knowledge of you and in grace. And also you will use it to call your elect from many nations that those who do evil would turn to you and might do the things which spiritually please you. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.